Do you remember where you were when you first realized that life doesn't work out the way you want it to? Can you recall your initial encounter with deep disappointment? Your parents divorced. Your spouse cheated. Your health never returned. Your friend never came back. Promises broken. Innocence taken. Idealism shattered. And in that moment, you felt the cold chill of winter. A Siberian cold settled over your life, and and your world became an arctic circle of, of dark days and long nights and bitter weather. And you began searching for springtime. And you wondered, didn't you wonder if you would survive this? Perhaps you're wondering still. The winter seasons of the soul can be dangerous. We're sitting ducks for despair and defeat. We, we turn away from others. We turn our backs on God. We turn inward and we turn into fearful, cynical, sour souls. Wintertime can be a dangerous time. But it can also be a developing time, a time in which we learn to trust God, to lean into Him, to depend on His Word, rely on His ways, and trust His character. Seasons of winter make us either better or bitter, and the choice is ours. The book of Esther helps us understand how to survive a season of winter. Today we conclude a 12-week study in this wonderful, fast-moving, 10-chapter book called the Book of Esther. The story is situated in 5th century B.C. Persia. Four main characters, King Xerxes, Haman, the equivalent of a prime minister, Mordecai, and Esther. King Xerxes is the overlord of 127 provinces, but for all the power that he's supposed to have, the one thing he can't control is his wife, Queen Vashti. And when he demanded that she come and strut in front of his drunk buddy, she refused. He kicked her out. Enter Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jew who worked in the palace. He had a cousin by the name of Esther. He convinced her to enter the equivalent of a beauty pageant, and she becomes queen. Neither Mordecai nor Esther tell anybody that they are Jewish until the king demands that everybody bow when his right-hand man, Haman, walked past. Well, it turns out that Haman is a Jew hater, and Mordecai, he he just can't bow in front of Haman. And he stands ramrod straight. His secret is out. His identity is disclosed. And Haman responds by declaring not just punishment for Mordecai, but for all Jews. Mordecai turns to Esther, the queen, urges her to put in a good word for her people. But she's hesitant. The consequence is one of the great verses in the Bible and certainly the key verse in the book of Esther. It involves a declaration and a question. 
both offered by Mordecai. At this point in the script, he stripped himself of his Persian disguise for fear of the death of his people. He is a picture of anguish. He wears sackcloth and ashes, and he cries out to Esther to intervene. She initially requests, re resists the request. She doesn't want to risk her life. She doesn't want to disclose her identity. Mordecai's reply to her was surprisingly sober. He said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. As we wrap up this study of this wonderful book of Esther, we need to go back to this key passage at the heart of the book, which really is the heart of the story. Mordecai here is not engaging in this empty rah-rah rhetoric. He is deadly earnest, and he delivers a message that has a one-two punch. The first punch is simply this, relief will come. Relief will come. He came to believe that the Persian king was no challenge for God. An evil despot cannot escape the hand of the, so of the sovereign Lord. This was Mordecai's message to his cousin and dear friend. This is God's message to you and me. Relief will come. God's got this. God's got this. How do you survive this winter? You shift your focus away from the struggles, and you ponder the hand and power of your almighty God. Your problem is not that your problem is so big, but that your view of God is too small. Are you aware of his immensity? The scripture says the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of hosts, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Think of the Old Testament promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. This required a miracle because both were well past childbearing age. Sarah initially laughed at the thought of bouncing their newborn on her knee. Look at this. And then the Lord said to Abraham, now why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, I'm too old to have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's the question. There's the question. Is anything too hard for God? Does he ever give up because the problem is just too great? Does he ever throw up his hands at a prayer request and say, Oh my goodness, they finally asked me one that I cannot handle? Does he ever shake his head and say, Man, I have no solution for that problem? The answer from the book of Esther, the answer from every page of your Bible is no. Nothing, absolutely nothing is too hard for our God. Dear friend, you must start here. You must start here. Don't measure the height of the mountain. Ponder the power of the one who made it. Don't tell God how big your storm is. Tell your storm how big your God is. Accept the invitation of the psalmist who said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Magnify. When you magnify something, you make it bigger. To magnify is to expand, 
to enlarge. Our tendency is to magnify our fears, to magnify our struggles. We place a magnifying glass on the diagnosis, the disease, the debt. Stop that. Stop that. Meditate less on the mess and more on the master. Less on the problems and more on his power. Sometimes I wonder. I really wonder if the church has forgotten the immensity of God. Were you to visit a congregation on a given Sunday, you'd likely find a group of people sitting in comfortable chairs hearing a comforting message about God who keeps us all comfortable. If we understood how big God is, I've sometimes wondered if we wouldn't enter the sanctuary wearing hard hats and body armor because we know the glory, the fire, the power of our great God. Do we know him before whom we gather? Do we understand that demons fear and flee at the sound of his name? That angels have been singing holy, holy, holy since the dawn of creation and still haven't sung it enough. That a glimpse of God's glory caused Isaiah the prophet to beg for grace and Mosea the patriarch to duck beneath the protection of a rock. Are we suffering from a lack of awe? And if we are, what are the consequences? Here's what I think. When God is small, problems are large. A wimpy God makes for a wimpy heart. But a great God makes for a solid saint. So let him be big. God said, to whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Let him be big. Consider the great work that he has done. And as you do, you'll consider your problems smaller. They will come into a manageable size. An artist apprentice went to his master with a problem. He couldn't capture the shades of a sunset. His teacher was at work, so the student spoke again. I can't paint the colors of the sky, he insisted. The master still did not respond. Sir, the student continued, the hues of the sunset are too difficult for me to paint. I need your help. Still no reply. The student was growing exasperated. He said, sir, I'm out of solutions. Nothing but silence. Won't you help me? The master lowered his brush, removed his smock, and looked at the student and said, I just did. And he walked away. That's when the apprentice saw the master's work. And during the time the student had been describing his struggle, the teacher had been painting the solution, a beautiful sunset. By studying the master's work, the student found his answer. By studying our master's work, by studying our master's work, the same will occur. Please, my friend, the next time you feel the weight of the world, just talk to the one who made the world. Consider the work of his hand. Look at this passage from the book of Job. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare it to you. Who among all these does not know 
that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. As your perception of him grows greater, the size of your challenge grows smaller. This is the point of the book of Esther, don't you agree? I mean, if God can sway the heart of a Persian monarch, can he not reserve, reverse the challenges that you face? If he, can, if he can take certain death, a declared holocaust, and turn it into a life and an ongoing holiday, can he not do something similar for you in your situation? You know, one of my most spiritual accomplishments in my whole life has been teaching each of my three daughters how to ride a bike. In each case, it was a solemn Saturday when we removed the training wheels and she mounted the oh-so-easy-to-tip-over two-wheeler. The procedure was the same with each of my three daughters. The dialogue went something like this. Dad... I'll hold the back of the seat and push you, daughter, but I will fall. Dad, no, you won't. I've got you, daughter, after a long pause, looking at the bike, then her dad, then the bike. I'm not sure you can do this. Dad, what do you mean? Daughter, you are too. A word would be selected that would fit my age, state of health, like clumsy, Old, weak, slow, close to death. Ouch. Dad, here's what you need to see. I can lift this bike. I can carry this bike. I can run with this bike. I can handle this. With my hand on the bike, you will not fall. And the conversation would seesaw back and forth and back and forth until finally the little Locato girl had enough faith in her mighty, strong, powerful Locato dad and convinced that he was up to the task. I call this my most spiritual event because I think that's probably the nearest I ever come to imitating the divine hand. What my kids asked me is exactly what some of you want to ask God. Are you up to this? Are you up to this challenge? Can you handle this? His answer, friend, his answer never changes. He says, I got you. I got this. Relief will come. There's no question as to God's capability. The only question is, will you get on the bike? Will you trust him? Will you rely upon his strength? Will you believe in his promises? Will you trust him to redeem you and to rescue others through you? This was the declaration of Mordecai to Esther. He said, and who knows but to, that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? But if you'll just get on the bike, you'll be in for the ride of your life. Now, the construct of this question is really interesting. It appears elsewhere in the Old Testament but then it appears slightly differently. Let me show you what I mean. When the people of Nineveh fasted in sackcloth and ashes, they asked a similar question. They said, who knows? God may yet relent 
and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. David fasted and begged God to heal the child that was born to him in Bathsheba. He explained his actions by saying, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. In the same manner, the prophet Joel urged people to pray and to fast that God would rescind the barrage of foreign armies that they were facing. Here was his question. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So the structure of Mordecai's question is not uncommon, but look, the object of his petition is unique. Jonah, David, and Joel raised a question about God. Who knows? God may yet relent. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious. Who knows? God may turn. However, Mordecai raised a question about Esther. He said, who knows? but that you have come for such a time as this. The emphasis of the book of Esther is on the person who receives the assistance. The question is not, is God up to this? The question is, are we going to trust him? Esther could have refused. She could have cowered in fear. But she spoke, and God used her to save the nation. It is not hyperbole to state that their, their courage changed the course of history, nor is it an overstatement, my friend, to say that God will do the same with you. For many years, I kept an x-ray hanging in my closet. Odd, I know, other people hang calendars and pictures. But as I would sort through socks and underwear, I would see this framed x-ray hanging on the wall. The picture is an axial view of a decimated hip. A jarring car crash left the hip broken in two places. And even an untrained eye like mine can spot the quarter-inch gap between the bones. The breakage was just one of several that the victim had suffered. And doctors feared, feared for the life of their patient. But even more, they feared for the life of her child. An unborn seven-month-old infant occupies the center of the x-ray. He floats amidst the fracture, blissfully unaware of the destruction that surrounds him. Dr. Michael Wirth, who gave me the image, was on call the night that the mom was brought into the emergency room. The ER team discussed, can, can we save both the mother and the baby? Can both the baby and the mother make it? If not, do we take the mother and lose the child, lose the mother and save the child? They never had to make the choice. The mother lived and the infant was delivered. And, and Michael kept this x-ray as a reminder. God delivers life through brokenness. God delivers life through brokenness. Yes, this creation may be fractured. Yes, his children may be wounded. But he is a capable, he is a capable physician. And a new birth is coming. I'm very sorry, my friend, for this season of winter. I really am. 
I'm sorry for the deep wounds and the weariness. I'm sorry that you so quickly understand the meanings of words like pain and fear and sadness. I know that springtime seems like forever from now, but it isn't. It isn't. The story of Esther dares you to believe that God, though hidden, is still active, and he brings life out of broken things. The Apostle Paul was summarizing our study when he wrote these words. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know, there's so many things in life we don't know, but the Apostle Paul says we do know four things. Again, we may not know what the economy is going to do. We may not know what our children are thinking. We may not know why our spouse is in a certain mood, but we can know four things, four certainties. First, we know God works. God works. We know God works, Paul says. He's ever busy behind the scenes, above the fray, within the fury. He hasn't checked out. He hasn't moved on. He is ceaseless and tireless. And he never stops working for our good, for our good, not necessarily for our comfort, not necessarily for our pleasure, not for our entertainment, but for our good. And since he is the ultimate good, would we expect anything less? And to do this, he says, God uses all things, all things. In Greek, the word is P-A-N-T-A, panta, like panoramic or panacea or pandemic. God uses all things, all th not just the good things, not just the pleasant things, but God uses all things for good, for the good of those who love him. Yes, Good things happen to those who trust God. Good things happen to those who trust God. Be clear, this promise is not extended toward the hard-hearted and the evil. It's not extended toward those who reject God and refuse God. But to those who love God, we can be sure that all things work together. All things work together for something good. The story is told about a visiting pastor who attended a men's breakfast in the middle of a farming area way out in the country. The group had asked an older farmer decked out in bib overalls to say grace for the morning breakfast. The farmer began his prayer like this, Lord, I hate buttermilk. The visiting pastor opened one eye to glance at the farmer and wondered where this prayer was going. The farmer continued praying, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was really concerned. Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, Lord, you know, I don't care much for raw white flour. The pastor opened his eyes again, looked around, and realized he wasn't the only one beginning to feel uncomfortable. But then the farmer said, But Lord, when you mix them all together and you bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So, Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you are done mixing. It will probably be even better than the biscuits. Friend, 
Our Heavenly Father is not done mixing. He's not done mixing. And you're going to be better because of this. Earlier this week, I was at a workout class visiting with a friend who broke her foot last summer. A plate has been attached to the broken bone, allowing it to grow back together. And next week, she's scheduled to go in for surgery and have the plate removed. I asked her how the doctor's visit went. She said, well, I was really surprised because the doctor showed me the x-ray. And where the breakage occurred, there is a callus of calcium. And the doctor said, see, it's stronger in the broken place. Friend, you'll be stronger in your broken place. You'll be better because of this. You'll have more faith on the other end of this storm. You'll have more wisdom on the other side of these questions. But please, for heaven's sake, don't give up. You got to get on the bike. You got to trust that God is mixing and working all things together for good. You got to believe, like Mordecai told Esther, who knows but that you have been placed in this situation for such a time as this. Yes, relief will come. The question is, will you be a part of it? Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we bless you. We bless you. We thank you for this story that you have given to us that has truly been a guide during the last few difficult, challenging months. Thank you for this story and others like it in the Bible that remind us that you're ever-present, even though we cannot see you. You're ever-strong, especially when we are weary, and you have solutions when we have so many problems. Today, Heavenly Father, grant that we could lift up our eyes and let our focus be more on you and your power and less on our problems. You're a good God, Father, and we are so very grateful that in those seasons in which we are searching for springtime, we are sure that time is coming. Through Christ we pray. And all the church said,